Welcome to Pastor Stephen Samuel's podcast, where it's our desire that you'll be encouraged and empowered to live as a disciple-making follower of Jesus. And so this morning, I, uh, I want to just give you a little snapshot. Of course, we talked about our mission trip. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to try, obviously, be discreet about details. But as we talked about it, um, so many people that we spoke with and engaged, of course, not having a ba- background in Christian faith, you kind of had to go back to square one, a man's need for God. We need God. And we can't just figure this all out. Many times the responses were, you know, I believe in everything. A little bit of this, a little bit from Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Islam, and Judaism, and Christianity. Everybody has their own way of following Jesus. How many of you ever heard that, right? Everybody has their own way of following God, and why can't we all just get along to go along? The only problem with that is that's not working in the world, <laughs> right? It's not working. If everybody had their own way to God and it could all work out, then we wouldn't have the craziness that we have in wars and uh, murders and theft and violence and abuse and all that crazy stuff. The reason the world is broken is because every man's way in his own sight might be good, but the end is destruction, right? Every man looks at his way, man and woman, we think, well, the way I'm following God, that's the best way. And, and I've thought about this. I've read enough books about it. Or if you're, if you're a millennial, I've watched enough YouTube videos about it. I've read enough posts about it. And I've constructed in my mind the best way to follow Jesus. And I have it figured out, Stephen. I don't need somebody in authority to tell me what to do. I heard the dumbest quote the other day. It says, no one should tell you what to do. And I thought, that's a key to be ignorant, right? If no one can tell you what to do in life, your level of intelligence is the cap by which you'll grow, right? Or by which you won't grow. But God offers to us a life of following him that demands that we listen and obey his voice to be changed into the nature or the person that he's called us to be. And only in that place are you going to find a sense of purpose and meaning in life. And I'm not saying everything is gonna be peachy and no problems, I'm just saying you'll be able to endure through difficulties with a sense of purpose when you know you're following the voice of Jesus. We call that a transcendent purpose, something bigger than yourself. Everybody's looking for a good life. Can I get a show of hands? Anybody want a good life? Yes? There's a few melancholy people out there, you want a miserable life. Don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. But the rest of us want a good life, and we believe that a good life is a life without pain and difficulty. But Jesus kind of tells us opposite. He tells us that the good life will have pain and difficulty. In fact, he says, with many tribulations, you will enter into the kingdom. So his way of thinking is dramatically different than our way of thinking. And I kind of feel, or I sense, Many times when I come back from a trip going overseas, this, this trip was like mission trip number 40-something, 40 44. Every time I come back to the United States, there's a little bit of a culture shock. And I don't mean culture shock just as in the food or the, the climate or the existence of air conditioning or, or those kind of things. But there's a culture shock in the way that people around the world perceive God or experience Jesus and the way that we in America experience Jesus or perceive his life for us. And this is not a message about why the American church is doing horrible or all that stuff. I just want to kind of maybe challenge some 
predispositions you have, beliefs you have about what it means to follow Jesus, and maybe just slightly turn the angle of your lens to realize there's more to this than what you've encountered so far. Say, Stephen, are you sure that, you know, uh, that the way I'm doing things is absolutely wrong? No, I'm not. But what I'm saying is, to get closer and further in the will of God in your life, you have to see things for what they are. And there's only one person who has a clear perspective of what it means to live an eternal life, and that one person is Jesus. And so when we go to the source, his words, of what it means to follow him, we have to know that that's the truth. And every other reality that we create of what it means to follow Jesus is not the truth. There's not multiple ways to follow Jesus. There's only one way, and it's by obeying his voice. Right? So I get caught in this cultural uh, shock, if you will. In the mission field, it seems like following Jesus has a real-life application of sacrificing your life. It really does. Every day, of course, our, our missionaries, which we love them very much, they wake up every morning, they spend time with the Lord, and then they make a plan to go into the streets and find people and tell them about Jesus and then disciple them once they believe how to follow Jesus. Like, that is their life. And so we kind of, on trip, we get swept up into that. Every morning we wake up and we spend time with the Lord. We uh, have our time of reading the scriptures and then we take time to pray for an hour or so. And then we grab a lunch and then go out to the streets. Right, Brian? Go out to the streets. And you're looking for people to talk to about Jesus. And as you're engaging them, it's just not a, hey, let me tell you some infomercial uh, content of just what I think, think you need to know. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through you to them. And then we come back to the States here, and it's totally different because here at home, it seems following Jesus has somehow mutated into an expectation of acquiring a great and comfortable life. And it's a little bit of a clash of ideas because they are following Jesus inadvertently or almost indispensably means suffering. And here we say following Jesus inadvertently or indispensably means happiness. And it's not true. And I'm not saying God wants us to be miserable. It's just maybe his purpose transcends happiness. And it's an eternal life that you're following. You think, well, man, Stephen, what are you trying to say? Are we, should we, what are we trying to do here? What are we messing up all the plans that I have for my life? That's my plan. Because here's what I don't want to happen, is one day when you close your eyes in this life, that you look back, standing on the threshold of eternity, you look back and gaze back on a few decades of your life and realize there was nothing you did that means anything except what you did to follow Jesus. And hopefully those moments of sacrifice to follow Jesus are many and not a few. We have uh, truncated or minimized the gospel to a profession of faith, and it is a lifestyle of faith. Nobody cares what you say, it's what you do the rest of your life that either evidences you're following Jesus or you're following yourself. And I'm saying that the culture shock, which I appreciate, and you know, minus the jet lag, and minus the, the adaptation, and you know, that thing, minus all that, the culture shock is sometimes brings me to the reality that we are in a fight. We're in a fight. 
And I don't mean a fight of just emotional contention, a fight of just ideologies and political, uh, political uh, conflicts and those kind of things. We are in a fight to save the souls of men and women. And let me tell you, and I'm saying this from a very loving heart as a good pastor that I can be, if you're not pulling people out of hell, what are you doing? If you're not saving lives from an eternity in hell as a follower of Jesus, then what are you doing? Well, I'm just trying to pay the bills and get by, Stephen. I'm just trying to make, make, make a good life for myself. And I would, I would almost dare to say that is the problem. You are making a good life for yourself and have completely missed the purpose of why Jesus came to save people from an eternity in hell. So, well, Stephen, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this this morning. You know, I just wanted to hear a good story about a mission trip. And I get it. We don't always like to live in that tension that we are in a battle, that we're in a fight to save people from hell. But here's the reality. People are dying and they are going to hell. And when they awaken in that eternal, eternal horror, you and I hold the responsibility of not doing what we were called to do, which is to make disciples of nations. I know we have all the excuses. I don't feel equipped. I don't feel, you know, that's not my job. That's the pastor's job. And listen, all those things fall like dead echoes on the ears of the one who tells you, follow me and make disciples. What is it that keeps us, and this is kind of where I want to go this morning, what is it that keeps us from this place of living a life where we're reaching lost people? Can I just, and I'm not saying this in a condemning way, but it's just a, a kind of a splash on the water awakening. If you haven't led anybody to Jesus in the last year of your life and discipled them how to follow Jesus, you are living in disobedience. You're living in disobedience. If you haven't led anyone to the Lord, and I don't mean just pray a prayer, I mean walk with them through how to follow Jesus and open your life up to lead them in discipleship. And so how do we get around that? How do we, how do we walk into a place of obedience in our life? I know some of you think, well, I might need to get a job at the church. That's not the answer. You're where you're at because there's lost people there and you're the one God wants to use to reach them. And so you need a plan to get into their life and, and bring them the gospel that changes them. Listen, let's just start with your family, right? You have the greatest influence in your family to make disciples, moms, dads. And if you're not discipling your children and grandchildren, you haven't got off of first base. So there's this place in, 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 in the in the tension between that world and this that I come to says, God, what can we do to move us as a people, as a church body here at Community Church in Orange, to be men and women who are aggressively doing the work of fighting this battle of saving souls from hell? What can we do? I don't want us just to walk out of here feeling like I'm not doing enough. I want you to walk out of here with a plan of what to do. How many all for that? What do I do? I think we go to the scriptures to find out how we can adjust our lens of reality with this contradiction, the, the contradiction of the way that it is in the mission world and the way that it is here. I would start by saying the first thing is your heart has to be in the right place. Why are we saving the lost? 
Though we could add a lot of emotional um, reasoning behind that, I could sway you with some great stories, maybe some tear jerkers. Here's the, here's the ultimate reason why we go and do what we do, are called in obedience to make disciples and save the lost, because Jesus said so. Because he told us to do that. You're saved to save people. And if you're, not saving, if you're not saving people, then the purpose for your salvation, relationship with the Father to show the world Jesus, you're not walking in that fullness. You're saved to save people. There's no, there's no, no other priority in your life. And let me tell you some of the distractions that keep us from that. Well, Stephen, once I make a lot of money, then I'm gonna give a lot of money to do that work for other people to do the work. You're saved to save people. Well, Stephen, once I get this education, maybe go through all this teaching and training, then I'll be able to really have a good conversation and bring people to Jesus. You know, when Jesus called the disciples, their, their evangelistic efforts began on day one. He said, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And as he began to change them, in the process of him changing them, they began changing their families and lives and the people around them. And I'm not saying education is not important or training is not important, it's vital. But don't let it become a barrier for obedience. Don't let it become a barrier to obedience. In fact, you might find you learn more about how to win the lost in on-the-job training than you do off-the-job waiting. Right? We have to step in this place, God, what do you want me to do? How do I reach the lost in my life? What is it that keeps us? Number one, the distractions. Distractions in our life. Family, business, work, all this stuff, the distractions, right? The, the nine to five, the rigmarole, that keeps us focused on what? Us and our success and what we wanna do. And sometimes to move into this place of obedience, you have to put a pause on that and say, the priority of my life, Jesus, is to follow you. How do I do that in the midst of all this stuff, right? And really at the root of it, I would say it comes down to what holds your affections. The love for this world, our culture, is the current that will pull you like an undertow into the confusion of serving yourself. There's so much a compelling in our culture for you to love yourself. Listen, I've read plenty of books on this, talked to many psychologists on this, and both sides of the fences, and I'm gonna tell you, pursuing that venue of you identifying and finding solace in who you are and what you are and, and the reasons and answers are all inside of you is a bunch of garbage. That is Hinduism repackaged over and over and over. You do not have the answers to your life. Only Jesus does. I was walking through my living room the other yesterday and Shiloh, my youngest, was watching you know, one of the Marvel comics and it was uh, Doctor Strange, whatever, Doctor Strange, and uh, he was, you know, was his mentor, whatever, was dying and, and they were at astral projection, they were out of their body and they were talking to each other and they were saying kind of the, the, the Buddhist ideologies, you know, you only find purpose in death. And he looked at me and says, is that true? And I said, absolutely not. We don't find purpose in dying, we find purpose in Jesus. That's our purpose. 
And so I went and Googled a little bit of Dr. Strange, and sure enough, all the narratives of Buddhism that are laced in there is because there's a Buddhist monk that helped build the script of idealism and, and you know, transcendence and purpose in life comes through avoiding suffering and all that nonsense. Listen, purpose in life doesn't come through avoiding suffering. According to Jesus, purpose in life comes by going through suffering and dying to self. But that's the voice of the world. Save your self. Save yourself, right? You get a good life for yourself. Listen, you get a good education, you get a great job, you get make a great paycheck, and build a life of comfort for yourself. And in that, you'll find happiness. And Jesus is saying, you won't. You won't. And we all know that up here, but yet our schedule and our calendar and our heart affections are really believing, man, once I get X amount of dollars in the bank, then I'll be really happy. I'll be free from financial anxiety. Listen, I don't care how much money you have, financial anxiety will exist. In fact, the more money you have, the more you worry about it. And I'm telling you that from friends who are multimillionaires, and all they ever worry about is losing their money. So it tells me anxiety over finances does not overcome by just having more money. Anxiety is overcome by trusting in the God who provides and saying, he's gonna take care of me. I'm not gonna be stupid with my finances, but I'm gonna trust him to give me wisdom and he will take care of me. And if I lose everything, I still have Jesus. The battle is the affections of our heart. Unless we aggressively surrender the impulses of our feelings, our agendas, our goals to the Lordship of Jesus, our view of eternal life will be distorted. I was talking with a friend last night. Where's the, what's his name? Where's Jeffrey? Wave at me, Jeffrey. Me and Jeffrey were out with a friend. He was a Hindu guy that I love. I've been talking to him for a year or so about Jesus and trying to bring him to the knowledge of the truth. And he keeps, you know, graciously calling me and we set up coffee and we talk. And so we're going through Mark chapter two. And as we're talking at the very end, you know, uh, the question comes up, my, my friend, he says, well, I, aren't I a Christian? And I looked at Jeffrey, and he looked at Jeffrey, and then he looked at me and says, you know, I said, am I a Christian or not? And I looked at him and said, you're not a Christian. You're not following Jesus. And he says, well, inside of me, there's a resident spirit. I am. The God is inside of me. And so <laughs> Jeffrey's eyes got kind of big, like this guy's claiming to be God. And I had to be honest and say, you're not God. Number one, God isn't that short. And I'm pretty sure he's not Indian. I think he was Jewish, but I didn't say that. But even in that ideology of Hinduism, it has seeped into our culture where we really practice the belief, though we may never say it, we're God. I determine what I do in my life. I can be what I want, do what I want, say what I want. I'm God. And the voice of Jesus in response to that fallacy of logic says, he is the Lord and there is none other beside him. And unless we come to that full submission to his will, he is God. And our affections are turned toward him, we will never experience eternal life. We know this, we know this in our head, but what is it that keeps us from experiencing this in our life. I want to turn you to John chapter 14. 
where Jesus kind of, in a small passage, unpackages for us, or gives to us, I should say, the revelation of what it means to live this life. You with me? John chapter 14. Jesus says, and this is the, the discussion that John so intricately uh, writes of Jesus speaking to his disciples before he's going to the cross, right? So they're either in the upper room or on the way to the upper, uh, the way to Gethsemane from the upper room. And as he's talking to them, he says to them, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Now think about this because we don't want to just read these words and let them wash over our brain. Jesus is about to leave the disciples. Go to the cross and die. And then after his death, he will, he will leave them. Physically, they will not be able to see him for a period of time right? Three days. And he says to them, listen, I'm going to tell you how to get through this season that's about to happen. And by, by uh, implication for us who don't see Jesus face to face in the person, in person, the commandment still comes, the directive still comes to us. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is the first step. People who don't love Jesus are not following him. There's a lot of people that like the idea of Jesus and the benefits of a Christian culture and the moral principles of Jesus, but they are not in love with the person, Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, this is how you will know it. You will keep my commandments. You cannot say, you cannot say, I love Jesus, but... This is who I am, and who I am violates the laws of God. You don't love Jesus, you love who you are. I love Jesus, but I have this lifestyle, and this is how God made me. You're lying to yourself. You don't love Jesus, you love your lifestyle. I love Jesus, but God understands who I am, and he, fill in the blank, made me this way. No. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. What are his commandments, Stephen? Right here. This is his commandments. That you love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no room for loving self in that. I know a lot of people take that scripture and says, well, that last part says, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus is not saying that statement of origin of him only saying it. He goes back, he's quoting Leviticus, and that phrase, as you love yourself, is not love yourself first so you can love other people. It's a qualification of how to love others. The way you would want to be treated, that's how you treat others. Do you hear what I'm saying? That some people have taken that passage and twisted it so much to where you got to love yourself first and then you can love other people. That's not what the scripture is saying. I mean, we can think those are great ideas, but what the scripture is saying, when you love God with everything in your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might, you love him with everything, that self that you have will die. And you'll learn what real love is. And then you have a capacity to love other people. Listen, I'm not saying that as an expert. I'm just saying the more 
uh, parts of my nature that I don't like keep popping up, I have to die to myself to really love people well. Notice, I have to die to myself to love people well. I don't have to love myself more to love people well. Jesus offers us a paradigm that's completely different than what the world is telling you. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. What is he saying? When we obey his commandments because of our love for him, not fear, but love for him, Jesus will tell the Father, or pray to the Father, say to the Father, give them the Holy Spirit. That's intense. When we obey Jesus' voice by following his commands, Jesus looks to the Father and says, send him the Holy Spirit. And the helper, he goes on to say, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That is the miracle of salvation right there. God's presence is no longer around us outside of our consciousness, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, his spirit is in us. The moment we believe, the Holy Spirit comes into us, physically takes residence in your consciousness. That's what makes you a new person. You can't muster it up with your will and your grit and your ambition and self-discipline. You have to have the Holy Spirit presence in you all the time, consciously awakened to his voice. And listen, it's not a one-time event. It's a continual tense in that as you obey, he keeps giving more of his spirit. As you obey, he keeps giving more of his spirit. So that means when you stop obeying, you're not receiving any more of his spirit. You're getting full of your self. As you obey, he sends his spirit. Keep reading with me. You with me? A little while longer, Jesus is saying, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. What is he talking about? He's about to die. The world's not going to see him anymore. Everybody in the world today cannot see Jesus. You know who they see? You and me. And because he lives, we live also. His spirit is resident in us. Keep going. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. There's two things Jesus promises here. First, when you love him and keep his commandments, he will give you his spirit. He will tell the, ask the Father to give you his spirit. And then he says, you will be loved by the Father. Read on here. Judas, not Iscariot, says to him, verse 22, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? And this is one of my favorite verses. How is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. Watch this. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear are not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus is very clear. He says, we will come and do what? Make our home with him. God wants a relationship with you where he can show up every day and talk to you. And the way you stay in that relationship is keeping the affections of your heart on 
Jesus. And the way we keep our affections of our heart on Jesus is by obeying his voice, his commands. There's no way around that. There's no way around it. If I'm living a life of disobedience, I'm walking in pride, arrogance, lust, selfishness, I am not experiencing the love of the Father. I'm experiencing a love for myself. And the love for myself dispels the love of the Father. Keep reading here. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. Let me tell you a little secret. Let me tell you Stephen's secret. I know you're gonna be totally appalled. Every time I'm in a conversation, an intense conversation, counseling, talking to somebody, I know sometimes I, and I've, I've gone to school quite a bit, got four college degrees and nerd myself out and still reading books and stuff. But I'm telling you, all that knowledge is useless when it comes to helping people. You know what really happens? And I'm, I'm just giving you my secret. Don't tell anybody. I'll write a book about it and then you can buy it later. I stop and I just listen for the Holy Spirit. And he says to me, ask him this question say this and that's how it's done all the knowledge of the world cannot pierce the heart of man but one word from the holy spirit changes hearts we were sitting in this table in front of a dunkin donuts while we were on this mission trip praying for this family this iranian family to come so we could share with them a iranian family and so when you're at dunkin donuts you know what you do you go get a Coffee. I know you said donut, but that's not true. Coffee. <laughs> so I'm sitting there ha with my two friends, and I say, we're going to, we're, we're tired. It was late in the evening, like Brian was saying. It was like 9, 10 o'clock in the evening. It was late. We're, we were getting tired because we're not used to walking so much. I said, why don't we go get some coffee? You know, so we found this Dunkin' Donuts as we're sitting there, and we're looking for these families, these Iranian families can't find any of them and so there's we're sitting outside the patio and there's a table here there's a table next to us that's empty and so I say you know what why don't we just wait here and I'm gonna go in and get a cup of coffee and we'll come back and take a break and so go in there get some coffee and it takes a little while because it's a little bit slower process there it took about 30 40 minutes come back out with these nice two lattes for me and my friend there set them down I said you know what we should just ask the Holy Spirit to bring a family to us and within about five minutes this family comes and sits at the table next to us Right? And they look the part. They look like they're Iranians, right? And so we're kind of negotiating, are they, are they not? What, you know, because, I mean, you're not just differentiating Iranians between Iranians and Americans. It's Iranians, Georgians, Kuwaitis, Palestinians, Arabs, Saudis, Pakistanis, Indians. Can you tell the difference? Me neither. <laughs> right? And so, and I'm one of them, you know what I'm saying? And so this family comes and sits next there, and we're negotiating, me and, and Ellie and, and my buddy um, Ron, we're negotiating whether they are or not. And so finally, we're like, well, the only one we're going to find out is one of us is going to have to go ask him. And I thought we were getting up to leave because we were frustrated. And she turned around, Ellie turned around, asked him, hey, are you guys from Iran? And they were like, yes, we are. We're like, well, of course, we prayed. God would send them, and here they are. Connect the dots, Sherlock. This is them, right? And so we sit down with them. 
and she starts talking to the, to, the, to the wife, and I start talking to the husband. And as we're talking, he begins to tell me he is a security guard at this really prestigious museum in Europe, and, and he hates Islam, and he hates you know, what that's done to his nation. And as he's talking, the Holy Spirit says to me, ask him this. Ask him about his writing. And I was like, well, hey, you know, I'm a writer, and I like to write a lot. Have you ever done any writing? And he starts telling me what he's been writing about. And then the Holy Spirit says, ask him this. What does he think about Jesus? And it was just so brilliant, just the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. One thing after the other, that conversation lasted almost two hours. And at the end of that conversation, he looks at me, him and his wife, and they say, we know what you're telling us is the truth. We know. Amen. It wasn't the brilliance of Stephen having all this knowledge. It was the brilliance of the Holy Spirit knowing his heart. And listen, that's the key to being led by the Spirit. You, are a sense, you have a sensitivity to hearing his voice. Now, I'll tell you this. Just be honest. There's times the Holy Spirit speaks to me, and I'm like, I ain't doing that. You've done it too, right? At least all the people that laugh, they've done that. The rest of you, you're lying. You know what I'm saying? God, this can't be your voice. I'm not doing that. And you know what you're doing? You are shutting off the power of the Holy Spirit, resisting his voice. What happens when you get born again? God puts his spirit in your consciousness. And if you will listen as dangerous and as risky and as sometimes faith-stretching as it is, that is what living for Jesus means, listening and obeying. When Jesus tells this passage to the disciples, he doesn't just say, listen to my voice. He gives them a promise. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring it to your remembrance. The battle in our heart of why we can't hear, and this is the only point I'm making here today, why we sometimes can hear and sometimes we can't hear, sometimes we're very sensitive, is that what if the Holy Spirit, let me say it this way, the Holy Spirit can clearly speak to us when the affections of our heart are entangled with Jesus because we love him, we can hear him. And the thing that keeps the affections of your heart from being consumed, the war of love, if you will, is a love for self. I'm not going to say the devil is the enemy. The enemy many times is self. That's the big enemy. And loving yourself, doing what you want, pursuing your ambitions and desires, that's the number one way to fall off the track of what God is speaking to you to do. Say, Stephen, how do you know that? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, verse 17 says it like this. John writing, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Let me read that part again. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Let's define what that means. What is the world? Every system of thinking, government, economics, sociology, psychology, every system that does not bring you to the person of Jesus is the world. No matter how good it sounds, no matter how many godly principles it gleans, if it doesn't bring you to Jesus and loving him more, it is a system of the world. Say, so are you sure it's that rigid? 
Jesus is showing us it's that rigid. There's either the love for Jesus or love for the world. And he says, do not love the world. You know why? Because it is pulling with an intense force for your affections. It is pulling for your affections. All the entertainment, all the prestige, all the popularity, all the things that you want are pulling. If you'll just give me a little bit of time, I will make you into something. It was the great temptation that Jesus standing on the precipice of the temple, temple mount and the devil standing before him and saying, I will give you all of this if you'll just bow down and worship me. And that temptation comes to us as believers as well. I'll give you all of this, a big church, a great career, listen, even a great ministry, if you'll just do what I tell you to do, if you'll just pursue your passions and it'll all come to you. And Jesus says to you, do not love the world or the things in it. Because everything in us wants to love the world because it's so good sometimes. It's amazing to me as I read the statistics, the direct correlation to the wealth of a nation equates to the increase of atheism. The more we have, the less we believe. That's why Jesus said, go to the poor. <laughs> because they come to the harsh reality that there's nothing in the world for them. And I'm not saying we should abandon people with wealth. I'm just saying it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven because there's so much distractions. Their love is tied up where? In their wealth. Not all, it's not a blanket statement, but I'm saying it's an obstacle every rich person has to overcome. And let me tell you, everybody in this room is rich. If you drove here in a car, you're pretty wealthy. Even if you owe money on it, you're wealthy. Do not love the world or the things in this world. Keep going. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this is some very clear-cut lines. If you love the world, this is what it does. It destroys the love of the Father in you. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I'll give you a little example. Love is kind of like, like an appetite. You know when your appetite is the greatest, when you haven't eaten in a while, right? And I, when we first got married, my wife would... Uh, cook for us and I was I know you're going to find this hard to believe I love to drink coffee and so what I would do is at work I would start in the morning get to work I was working at a, a bank or whatever and or Verizon and, and I would get a cup of coffee in the morning I drink my coffee pretty much all morning and then you know coffee is an appetite suppressant and so after a while you're just not hungry right and around lunchtime rolls around and I didn't eat lunch I still don't eat lunch very often and so I would just drink another cup of coffee. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There, fortunately, there was a Starbucks right down the road. I don't know how that happened, but it happened. And so right about three or four o'clock, and I was getting off of work, let's say five or six o'clock, I would go get another coffee. Well, my poor wife, she would have this great meal prepared, and I'd get home, and you know what? Wasn't hungry. And that caused a lot of problems. You know what I'm saying? All the married people, amen, we know. <laughs> It's not that I didn't like her cooking or didn't like her food. I didn't have a desire for her food because I filled myself with something else. It works the same way when it comes to loving Jesus. 
You could will yourself to love Jesus only so far, but if you keep filling yourself with other stuff, the love of the Father will grow cold. You can't watch 60 hours of Netflix and think, I'm gonna passionately love Jesus on Sunday morning. It won't work. You can't fill yourself with entertainment and all the luxuries that feed your flesh and think I'm gonna have a great love of the Father also. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not there. Watch what he says here. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Man, I wish I really had time to dive into those three things, but take them for what they say. The lust of the flesh, which means what? I have a craving for this. This is what I was created for, Stephen. I have a desire for this. That's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, I see things, covetousness. Oh, I wanna be like that, I wanna see this, I wanna have this. There's a desire for that, I've gotta have it. And listen, it's not that God is against materialistic things, it's when they begin to consume our affections, that's the problem. You know when you're crossing that line because you're like, eh, I don't have to go to church today, I don't have to really read the Bible today, I've got all this other stuff to do. You know what's happened? The love of the world has consumed the love of the Father. And listen, I tell you, I have to be vigilant, just like you, to keep those things in check. I'm not gonna give myself over. I'm not gonna just indulge in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And the last one, Pride Month as it is, the pride of life. Let me tell you a little secret about pride. It's not a demon to cast out. It is the direct opposition of a man or a woman who does not want to obey God. That is pride. If it was a demon to cast out, it would be great, but it's a mind to change. Pride is the first sin. The devil says what? I'm gonna do this. I will ascend. I will be like the most high. And you know how long that lasted? A millisecond. Thrown to the earth, cast out of all of his glory. God has no tolerance for pride. Zero tolerance for pride because it is a direct opposition to his nature. You know what God does with prideful people? He breaks them so that they will humble themselves. And listen, when I've seen God break people, it is not fun and nobody's rejoicing, but he breaks them. I'm reminded of this story of King Herod. You remember the story in the book of Acts? He's killing the, killing the apostles, and he stands up in the cities of Tyre and Sidon there to bring him homage because he's trading with their cities an economic benefit. And he stands up on the balcony, and historians even note this. He stands up on the balcony, and the people begin to chime the image of a God and not a man. And as he's there waving his, you know, Princess Diana hands and everybody's looking at him and he's got this embroidered cloak that's real flashy, the angel of the Lord comes down and says, nope, and he falls over dead. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here's what he says. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This morning, you might find yourself in the ditch, the pit of, Stephen, I've been pursuing the 
things that I want, my life, my dreams, my ambitions, my hopes, and I've neglected my love for the Father. I've neglected my love for the Father. When people talk about Jesus, I don't get excited anymore. I'm just like, eh. When people talk about the scriptures, my heart's not stirred because I'm so full of coffee, I can't enjoy the meal. How do you get out of that hole? The first thing is realizing I'm in the hole. God, I've allowed these things to consume my love for you. I have a love for the world. And that's okay to say. It's okay to be honest and say, I think I've lost my way a little bit. Listen, I've had to say it, and I'm a preacher. I've gotten so busy with doing all the preaching stuff and ministry stuff, I've forgotten the love for the Father. And I have to say, God, I need your forgiveness. I repent. I've allowed the love of this world to take over my heart. And the moment I confess my sins, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And listen, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us. That means he resets the appetite. He helps us get out of that lust of the flesh. You know another great tool that will help you destroy the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life? Which grace, can you come help me real quick? One great thing that does this, fasting. When you put down your food, listen, I'm not talking about fasting in, in um, various different ways. I'm talking food and water fasting, right? Get to the heart, get to the gut and say, listen, I'm going to set my side time right now to fast and seek God's face. God, correct my lens. If you find yourself in this pit where your affections have been consumed by the world, the first thing you do is say, God, I need help. I want to obey your commands. You know the command that Jesus gives us when we're in, trapped in this idolatry? The command is repent. Repent. And when I obey this command, here's what Jesus says. If you keep my commandments, you repent. Then I will pray the Father and I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And then the Father will love you. And this morning, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to come and fill some of you back up because your heart's affection has been consumed with so many other things. And listen, I know the, the negotiation that goes on in our minds sometimes. Well, God, let me do just one more thing and then I'll give everything to you. Let me just make this one more benchmark in my life and then I'll, give it, I'll start following you with all of my heart. And you know, you're not promised tomorrow. There's always one more thing. I remember as a young man in high school, graduating, had all these dreams and hopes and, 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 and plans. I wanted to do all these things. I had, I had an evangelist friend of my dad's come to me and he said, listen, I'll, I'll pay for your first semester, your first year as a, as a student at Old Roberts University because I wanted to go into medicine. And I said, God, that's what I want to do. You created me, you gave me the intellect, the intelligence, the grades, the, the whatever, and that's what I want to do, God. I want to go into medicine. I want to be a doctor. And I had all these plans. They weren't horrible plans. I mean, it's not wrong to be a doctor, right? But it is if God has another plan. And I remember going to my dad and saying, God, this, Dad, this is what I want to do. And you know, my dad, he's so fun. He's fun. Stephen, I don't think that's the Lord. <laughs> like, what? What? And it's amazing how God speaks to authority, especially the authority you don't like at times. 
I don't think that's the Lord. And I had to grab my heart, because I loved Jesus as a teenager, man. I was passionate. I was a youth pastor. I was just going berserk. And this was a great opportunity. And I know God had this for me. And the voice of Jesus came to me and said, that's not my plan. And I had to say, okay, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to preach the gospel. This is what I've called you for. Man, I struggled, especially on those months where there was little to no money coming in as a preacher of the gospel. I said, God, I could have been a doctor and this wouldn't have been a problem. He said, no, you couldn't have been a doctor and this would be a problem. He has a plan. He wants you to hear his voice. And this morning, I believe many of us, listen, you've been going through your weeks these last few months and you're ragged out, tired. And you haven't had an opportunity to turn your affections back to the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, I need to be filled again because I've been pursuing the love of the world and I need the love of the Father again in me. And that's a miracle that only the Holy Spirit can do. It's as simple as you just admitting and saying, yes, I need the love of the Father. Holy Spirit, will you come in, fill me again. Say, Stephen, how many times do I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Every day. Every day. In fact, Paul admonishes us in Ephesians chapter 4, 4 verse 32, I believe. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Don't be drunk with wine, which is a dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled. And in the book of Jude, he said, listen, build yourself up in the most holy faith praying always in the Holy Spirit. So that gift of tongues, that gift of praying in the Spirit is to do what? To fill you with the nature, the awareness, the consciousness of who He is. And that awareness and consciousness of who He is will put in you a love for the Father. And when you fall in love with Him, everything else makes sense. It doesn't mean the difficulties go away. It means you see the difficulties for what they are. This is trying to grab my affections for the Father, and I'm not going to let it. Thank you for listening to Stephen's podcast. To connect with us or to order his book, A Reason for Hope, visit stephensamuel.org. You can also find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, you guessed it, Stephen Samuel. Thanks for listening.